Welcome to Early Learning Matters podcast. We've also got a combined podcast today with the Chatting Creative Arts uh, team. So this podcast is focused in on creative arts in the early years. And that's talking about the importance of creative arts in, in, the, in the early years, including early childhood and the first years of school. My name is Jackie Ward. I'm the Early Learning Coordinator at the Department of Education, and I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Julia and Gay. I'll leave it to you to introduce yourselves. Hi, my name is Julia Brennan, and I'm the K-6 Creative Arts Advisor for our Department of Education in New South Wales. And today I'm with Dr Gay Lindsay, who's a lecturer in the Early Years degree at the University of Wollongong. Her PhD thesis explored the visual arts beliefs and pedagogy of early childhood educators. Welcome, Gay. Thank you. It's great to be here. Would you like to tell us a bit more about your research, Gay? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what the background of my story is that I taught pre preschool for more than 20 years and, and I was a preschool teacher and director. I had been trained in both primary and early childhood, but my whole career had been in the early childhood space, mainly in um, New South Wales, but a little, little time in Western Australia as well. I guess what led me into doing my research, it wasn't something I'd ever had an ambition to do. I hadn't thought I would ever be a university lecturer. But throughout my career, I had, um, I'm somebody who has a passion for the arts in early childhood pedagogy, but again and again, I used to see examples of practice that made me ask lots of questions. Uh, I used to see educators saying the arts were really important, but at the same time, putting up lots of identical stencil type activities on the wall in the name of art. And I guess that that career experience, my professional experience, was what opened the door to doing research because I just really felt frustrated that while educators were saying the arts were important, it wasn't playing out in what I saw in practice. And, you know, I'd so often hear, hear my colleagues and other teachers and early childhood educators saying, oh, but I'm not the creative one, I'm not the artistic one on our team, uh, and therefore people were floundering a bit. And so I talked to a colleague at the University of Wollongong and sort of said, what can we do about this? You know, obviously there's some sort of a glitch. And so that's what's really opened the door for me to do. Uh, initially it was a master's by research because, again, I hadn't pictured myself doing a doctorate. Um, so I started that and then the findings just really showed that this was an area that needed further exploration and deeper exploration. So it led into me doing a PhD while I taught at the uni um, and then now I'm sort of in a, a full-time position as a lecturer in the early years team. So, yeah, it's been a, an interesting and very unexpected journey for me. Wow, thank you, Gay, for sharing that with us. It's amazing and very inspiring. So we've heard a lot about the the last, the most recent parts of your career, So, but how did your arts education journey start before that? Well, I guess, um, you know, like all of us, it starts when we're very young with whatever experiences we have in early childhood. I actually do remember my very first 
experience. I went to one of the first preschools in uh, Toowoomba where I grew up, a place called Little Glen. Um, I remember it was in a big old Queenslander house. I don't remember much else about it except for this room where I got to go and do finger painting. So that's a really early memory for me. And I guess throughout my primary and high school education, I was always drawn to the arts, both visual arts particularly, but also music. Um, I've always played keyboard and flute and, and been a singer and been in choirs. And But certainly with the visual arts, it was just a language that I wanted to speak and that I wanted to, to learn better and communicate with and play with. And so for me, that desire to communicate through visual tools and methods was sort of ingrained in me from early childhood. Not that anyone in my family practised any visual arts, so that wasn't an influence, but it was just something I was always drawn to. And when I was making art or or um, enjoying the arts or going to an art gallery, it just took me to a place that was um, fulfilling and peaceful and sort of what Csikszentmihalyi calls being in the zone, um, that flow theory idea of just being in the right place and doing what I was meant to be doing. Um, so, no, I haven't had any formal arts training apart from what I did in high school, but then, uh, you know, sort of self-taught since then, really doing online courses and different experiences and I guess just not being afraid to play um, with materials and try them out and experiment with them, which is what we want for children, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, um, Gay. And I've had the privilege to listen to you speak um, a few times and um, find what you say inspirational and, and interested to hear about your research. But I guess you covered a little bit there about what, what does it meant to you sort of personally, but I'd be really interested to see how the arts have influenced your life um, professionally, because I know you talk about engaging with the arts and the work that you did as a teacher with children right through to your PhD. Would you like to share a bit of information about that? Yeah, so professionally, I think this connection of the arts to education, it's been incredibly fulfilling to do some deeper thinking about that and to draw upon some of the foundational theorists in this space, you know, going back as far as Froebel and Rousseau, who talked about learning by doing and then, you know, coming into John Dewey's work, learning through play and that play-based holistic curriculum where the arts are at the centre of everything. I love Eleanor's work in terms of the way he said that the arts should be more centralised in our education systems. He really drew upon Dewey's work in a lot of his thinking. So that idea of going more deeply into why the arts are important for us um, has really driven a lot of my motivation in this space. And certainly looking at the Convention on the Rights of the Child has been extremely inspiring for me because when you look at that and you hear that learning, that connecting to your, your cultural and your artistic life is considered to be a human right that all of us should be um, experiencing and that all education systems should be honouring and upholding, that is my biggest motivator, to sort of think that too many uh, children go through the schooling system and become adults like the students who come to me at university saying that they're not confident with the arts languages, that they don't see themselves as 
as having the capacity to communicate through the arts. And I just think that's a travesty that we have to do something about because artistic expression and experience, that human drive to communicate in multiple ways isn't limited to literacy. It's not limited to reading, writing and what we say with our mouths. It's actually an experiencing. You know, engaging with the arts is that beautiful human experience that nobody should miss out on. And I think the world is much um, poorer when the human beings on this planet are so narrowed in their thinking instead of expanded and and art-centred. Um, I'm probably waffling on. I get a bit excited about you know, <laughs> advocating for, for our rights to be whole people, not part people. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Many people grow up to be part people who yearn for the arts. People yearn for the arts. I mean, you look at what's going on in lockdown mm. during this pandemic and when people are shut down, they gravitate to the arts. And ironically, it's the artists in our communities who are being so poorly cared for at this time. Mm. And yet they're the ones we're tuning in to watch the movies they make and the product and their music and their visual arts work, which has just proliferated through throughout the pandemic internationally. People are reconnecting with their love of crafts and their love of making. Um, and I think that's one positive maybe that's come out of the pandemic. And you think too with those early images of that first lockdown in Italy last year and what were people doing going onto their balconies to sing to each other? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's it's that yearning and that, that spiritual connection to what we're meant to be that the arts um, really foster, you know, that that yearning inside us to be more than literal, um, to be imaginative and to be creative and to live out, you know, our, our full potential as human beings. And I think in our education systems that's something we have to keep fighting for because testing regimes and, and all of that sort of thing put so much emphasis on preparing for tests and performance in the classroom and so on instead of remembering that education for me, is about preparation for life and that if we're thinking about how do we prepare um, and foster children's capacity to become whole human beings and thinking, contributing citizens, then the arts should be central to that because the arts welcome critical thinking and reflective practice and and um, creative solutions to problems. And, and new collaboration. Ones. Yeah, yeah, and new ways of looking at things and and just playing with ideas instead of feeling like we have to have all the answers or that we have to get the right answer. The arts embrace a notion of exploration and inquiry and play, and I think that's what we need to really be fostering. And that's that's where that's why I position the arts the way I do. It's not art for art's sake, but it's art as the channel by which we explore our humanity and where we belong in the world and what our theories are of the world. And that's no less true for children. And, and as the adults in children's lives, we have to be facilitating that. We can't assume it's just going to happen by magic. Um, Gay, you've, you've kind of answered my next question, which is what you think 
the power of the visual arts are. So I think we might just sort of combine the next two questions because the one sure. after that was why are the arts so important for young children? Well, where do you begin? I mean, there's lots of research evidence that highlights the benefits that exist um, when children are engaging in arts experiences. I mean, some of the literature says things like some of the benefits of the arts are cross-disciplinary learning. So Elliot Eisner wrote a lot about that in Australia. Felicity McArdle has written a lot about that. Carlina Rinaldi in Italy has, has done a lot of work around that idea of cross-disciplinary learning. Children can get, the research backs this up too. This isn't just my opinion. So this yeah. is children gain motivation, enjoyment, critical thinking problem solving, um, self-discipline, self-regulation, which we all know from recent research is the number one quality that, that guarantees success at school is the capacity to self-regulate and cope with frustration and all of that. Um, the arts foster positive attitudes to learning to, um, through creative learning experiences, through fostering and valuing children's imaginations. Um, and, you know, don't we want to do that? Inspire children to want to learn is, you know, so that if we could teach science utilising, you know, um, drawing activities, if we could learn mathematics through music, then I think we'd see a whole lot of children much more switched on to learning than the really didactic, um, narrow focused learning in silos that yeah. unfortunately can happen. Um, I think it's also important to remember researchers like Dewey and like Robin Ewing and like Elliot Eisner who said that the arts foster aesthetic appreciation um, that that awareness of beauty and that delight in appreciating how that that all-encompassing feeling you get when you listen to an amazing piece of music or or lose yourself in an art making process but it's also about children developing tools for communication and meaning making and also um Eisner also talked about, you know, this idea of developing skills for children to navigate a globalised world. So, you know, they say that the jobs children will have in 30 years' time, we don't know what those jobs are, so we can't actually prepare them for the future, but what we can do is support them to be creative thinkers and problem solvers and persistent and, you know, to, to tackle problems in different creative ways. But what I found when I was doing my literature searches for my research is that all of those benefits that I just listed and that are talked about by numerous scholars, Anne Bamford actually said that in her review of all of the literature, she said that those benefits only come about for children when effective and quality provisions are made by the teachers who are working with them. And I, for me, that really impacted um, the way I was thinking about my work and now my work preparing the next generation of early childhood teachers. It's not enough to put out some activities on a table and think that you're going to achieve all of those benefits for children. The teacher, the adult who is making the curriculum decisions, they are the number one key ingredient to whether children are going to get all of those benefits that can come from the arts. And that was certainly at the centre of my PhD research. I really was focusing on what are the beliefs 
um, and choices that the teachers were making that drove their pedagogy um, or that informed their pedagogy. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. We found some interesting things. <laughs> You've said some amazing things there, Gay, lots of different things um, that I would love to comment on. But um, I'm going to move on to our next uh, question there, which is just thinking about, so you've talked about the pedagogy there. Could we bring it around to the curriculum and let's sort of unpack, a, a, I guess, a bit about the misunderstandings about the place of the arts in both the early years learning framework and in the curriculum um, in the, you know, early stage one in schools or, or beyond. But what are your thoughts and would you like to discuss a little bit more about the, you know, the way the arts are framed in those spaces? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously in the early years, learning framework, one would assume that it would have the arts at the core of it and yet the arts are not really mentioned terribly much in the early years learning framework. Hopefully that might be something that, is addressed a bit more um, in the review that's that's happening now. But essentially, when you look at the early years learning framework, those visual and creative languages are sort of embedded um, within notions like communication and children's identity, um, confidence. Multiple intelligences are mentioned fleetingly, but there's actually no specific guidance for educators, and I'm talking about visual arts here because that's what I really analysed, but um, in speaking with colleagues doing research in the music um, space, there are similar issues around the lack of specificity in the early years learning framework around what to teach. Um, that's where the ACARA curriculum is actually quite helpful. And I, I often direct my early year students to have a look at that because at the very least, it's outlining some of the possibilities around the different visual arts domains. So it's spelling out what you might do with drawing, with painting, with clay and so on. And so, yeah, I think the, the issue around our early years learning framework and even to an extent that the curriculum for the primary years is that if there isn't specific support and guidance around what quality visual arts pedagogy might look like, then educators who lack that knowledge um, are, are falling back on their own assumptions or their own individual beliefs. And in fact, the Educator's Guide highlights that. It, in the Educator's Guide for the EYLF, it says that without a guiding framework or uh, um, some clear ideas about how what quality visual arts pedagogy could and should look like, then educators' individual images, beliefs and values about children and what they should be and what they should become, that's what's actually influencing the planned and the unplanned curriculum. And the problem with that, as I see it, is that then children's experiences will vary from teacher to teacher, depending upon the confidence of the teacher, but also the capacity of the teacher to interpret the curriculum documents and see where the arts actually sit or where they would fit under the banner of communication. So if you don't have arts knowledge, then you might read that section of the framework that talks about strategies to support children's communication and only be thinking about verbal and auditory communication rather than visual communication or musical commu communication or communicating through dance. 
So we don't know what we don't think about if you, you know, like we don't dwell or we don't plan for something that we aren't aware of. And that certainly did come through in my research with my participants. A lot of them said they knew the arts were important, um, but very few of them could articulate the specifics about um, what they had learned at uni or in their vocational training, for example. They they knew, yeah, so it was all very broad and not specific enough. And I think that's the risk is that without that specific domain knowledge, that subject content knowledge or pedagogical content knowledge, as Shulman called it, then we're sort of operating in a vacuum. And what my research suggests is if people have very little memory of their of their coursework at university or in their vocational training, then when they're looking for something to implement in the curriculum, they'll go to what feels safe. And for a lot of people, what feels safe is found on Pinterest. Um, yeah. And I'm not an enemy of, I don't, I don't hate Pinterest. It, ha, it serves some great purposes for collecting ideas and sharing and disseminating what can be great ideas sometimes. But if educators don't have the capacity to evaluate the quality of an experience, because of what they know about how children learn, because of what they know about the visual arts methods and techniques, for example, then they'll go to what feels safe because people want a formula. They want to know, they want to feel like they're doing the right thing by children. They want to keep children busy and happy and they want to create items that the parents will like and all of those sorts of traps that, that we fall into if we're not confident in our own pedagogy. Does that I, answer? Well, I'm sort of waffling yeah, again. No, no, you're not. Complex. And I think that's really yeah. good. And it actually is a beautiful segue into where we were hoping to take the conversation next, which is the difference between a learning experience and an activity. So busy work, as you, as you have just identified, and also that idea of the mass production of identical artworks that we have all seen. Um, and then we get into the process versus product debate. There's so many little things in there. But I think even coming back to that first point about your Pinterest teaching, and I mean, I've got friends who are high school visual arts teachers and they tell me exactly the same thing is happening there too. So let's talk about the difference between a learning experience and an activity. Yeah, so for me, and I've got to credit my wonderful colleague in Ireland, Evelyn Egan, who has some great resources online if you want to hunt for her as well. Um, Evelyn and I have had numerous conversations over the years about this difference between an experience and an, and an activity. And certainly John Dewey talked about the difference way back in the 1940s and 50s. So he talked about art as an experience, which sort of goes back to what we were saying before about that holistic approach to the arts, where the arts is, well, what I call it is the arts are the glue that should hold the curriculum together, that we should be integrating right across the curriculum. Yep. So from my research, what I really came to the conclusion of was that art as an activity, it's certainly something that happens in early childhood centres and in schools, but what that looks like for me is those one-off activities. So it's getting the idea off the internet, it's preparing all the materials, often huge labour job for the educators um, because you're getting all the bits of paper ready and you, you're making the template, the thing that the children will copy or the, the example for them to follow. 
and it has a beginning and an end. It's often very product focused um, and it often isn't being built upon what the children already know, the skills they might already have or their interests. And so whereas when Dewey talked about art as an experience, he was talking about that idea and we certainly see examples of this, you know, in quality centres and and I've, I'm a bit of a student of the Reggio Emilia approach. And so their approach to utilising the arts as a language sort of draws upon this idea that it's not a one-off experience. We're building, we're scaffolding. We're actually basing our experiences on what children have shown an interest in and then we're extending, expanding that. And I love what... Dewey in his very uh, quaint old American style of writing. I mean, he's he's appalling to read really because he's a bit like me. He waffles on and on and you fight to get to the point. But anyway, um, but he, he sort of likened um, those one-off activity type experiences being like um, food that is not nutritious. Mm. So he, he didn't actually use the word junk food. I've sort of adapted what he said. But if we're thinking about, you know, children love junk food. So so <laughs> children love these activities too. So a lot of educators will justify, you know, we all made um, a, a hungry caterpillar out of a piece of egg carton and some pies and some Google eyes and stuck some crepe paper all over it, right? And a lot of people will say, oh, but the children love it. They love it. Well, yes, they do, but children don't know what the alternative is if we don't expose them to the richness of that and if we don't believe that they're capable of doing a drawing of a caterpillar, um, researching caterpillars, learning about caterpillars and exploring them through multiple arts methods on multiple occasions. And so I love what Dewey challenges us to think about that material relationships, relationships with the materials and tools that we use when we're making art should never be a one-off thing. You know, that's like saying I'm going to learn French this Friday afternoon and then I'm going to learn a bit of Chinese next Friday afternoon. It'll be fun. And then the week after that we'll do a bit of Spanish. How do we expect anyone to develop fluency in a language that has such great value for children, if we're just dipping in and out of these transient, meaningless, um, product-focused activities that don't even empower the child as artist, that don't even teach them skills and techniques that can sustain them across numerous experiences. So I like to think about developing relationships with materials, and you don't develop relationships unless... You spend time experimenting to start with, getting to know the material. What language does it speak? What marks does it make? What happens if I do this? What happens if I use it? Use this charcoal on cardboard instead of paper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, when people are sort of saying, "Oh, you know," I get really frustrated on social media because I don't know about the primary school teachers listening, but the early childhood teachers will hear what I'm saying because there's some social media groups where people will jump on and ask advice. You often hear people, you know, jump on and go, ladies, to which I want to reply there are men in early childhood too. Let's be respectful in our language. Um, 
But they'll go, ladies, you know, it's Father's Day coming up. I saw one of them this morning. Father's Day coming up. Has anyone got any ideas of what we can do? And I just think people are hungry for ideas, which is so ironic because, you know, I could use charcoal with a group of children for three months straight and they wouldn't get bored because it would be developing that relationship with the material and meaningfully exploring the kinds of marks you can make and how you might extend that and expand upon that. And I know in my teaching experience with early with young children, I just never found they ever got bored. I think you raised some really good points there, Gay, and for me that comes down to, you know, a disconnect between, you know, even the way we refer to those names and then activity-based learning experience. And when you think about it as a learning experience, you're going to think about it in in, in a different way as opposed to an activity to do for Father's Day or whatever it might be. So yeah. um, thank you for that great exploration on those um, ideas and concepts. I hope we've inspired lots of educators to think a little bit differently, I guess, about the way they um, plan experiences and the way they reflect on the learning that that um, is encompassed within those um, ideas. So moving back to, I guess, now, you know, that knowledge of, of self and you talked about the importance of um, educator identity, confidence, knowledge and self-efficacy for the arts. You know, that concept of knowing what to teach and how to teach it, I think, is fundamental across a lot of areas that we talk about. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about why you think this is so important? Yeah, so self-efficacy is is a concept, like you said, it's that idea of knowing what to teach and how to teach it. But self-efficacy refers to the confidence of the educator to be able to take what they know and translate it into the curriculum that they offer to children. And for me, I I sort of intrinsically felt you know, when I saw all of those issues happening in my practice as an early childhood teacher and director, when I kept hearing people say, I'm not artistic, I'm not the artistic one, but, 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 um, I really felt that at the core of that was educator confidence with the arts and that disconnect that had happened for them in their early childhood or in their schooling experience. And that played out, you know, when I was interviewing my participants, I asked them to remember their early childhood experience of art making, their primary school experience and their high school experience. And without exception, really, every participant could remember a moment in time when their self-belief stopped. Now, for a lot of people, you know, in terms of the development of drawing, we know that at about the age of eight or nine is when children really start valuing hyperrealism. And that's when a lot of people really start judging mm. themselves. And so that un unbelievable, it's, it's quite interesting that it's the capacity to draw something like a photograph that we in the West at any rate, um, my participants as an example of that, seem to sort of decide that therefore I'm not artistic because I can't draw something that looks, you know, it's it's either when you're sitting next to Susie who draws horses like, you know, you think they're fantastic. Probably if you looked back on it, she's just learned how to draw the schema of a horse and it doesn't actually look like a horse, but we thought it did. And so it made us, we judged ourselves. And find that really interesting with the arts that people are so judgmental about of themselves um and so rather than feel inadequate a lot of people then just 
disregard the arts and go, oh, well, I'm not artistic or, well, you know, I can't write my name when I'm three, so therefore I'm not going to ever be literate. Um, mm. You know, Felicity McArdle talks about that in, in a really great little article called um, What If What If Art Was a Language or something like that. I can give the link to it. It's from ECA. Um, yeah, so can you go back to the question because I think I've done my waffling thing again. I think you've handled it. We can probably move on to the next one. <laughs> okay, that was magnificent. And it actually just reminded me so much of we see uh, dramatic play, exactly the same thing. It stops. We see singing. I mean, I just watched my three-year-old neighbour out in the driveway singing to himself, and I know that in a couple of years' time that's going to stop and that judgement sets in and yeah, it's, it's sad. And I live with a professional musician who's, you know, the whole life is built around that never good enough type of thing. I always have to be better. It's just, it's an amazing field, isn't it, for that? But I guess that's... Yeah. And the striving is good. Like, striving for excellence, We yeah. don't want to say that we that we want people to be fatalistic and say, you know, well, if I can't paint like, you know, the people who enter the Archibalds, then yeah. I can't be an artist. And that's what I talk to my students at uni about, actually, is that idea between being a big A artist, you know, an artist who's making their living out of the arts or entering competitions and hanging their work on gallery walls. But I like to translate it back to that idea of, well, we can all be little A artists. In the same way Csikszentmihalyi talked about being a big C creative, you yes. know, the Einsteins and the Picassos yes. of the world, but we can all be little C creatives, you know, we can all play, we can all experiment, we can all wonder, we can all try something new. And with my students at uni, I actually do teach them to draw, ironically, because I find that that's the key for a lot of people, that when they actually get taught, lo and behold, and can actually reproduce something that they're observing and they can reproduce those lines just by learning how to look, really, and learning how to sort of make that connection between the eyes and the right-hand side of the brain and, and the drawing implement, that sort of unlocks something for a lot of my pre-service teachers. And all of a sudden they go, "You what, in one hour? You taught me something that I never thought I could do. Therefore, this is something that I can learn. And so I guess I'd really encourage all of the listeners, anyone who's got a yearning for the arts, reconnect with whatever you yearn to do because there's so much available in this world that we live in now more so now that anything you want to learn you can search for it on youtube so don't disregard your own capacity to mm. be a little a artist even if you never envisage being a big big a artist um i just think enrich your own life first and you will enrich the lives of children um, and, and I don't think children's lives will be enriched unless they're seeing the adults in their lives um, embracing the importance of the arts personally as well as professionally. I, I actually really love that, Gay, because I've often used the big C and the little C creative but never the big A and the little A artist, so I'm going to, going to steal that. 
if that's yeah, all right. Yeah, no, go for it. Let me get it. That's all good. I really <laughs> liked the, um, the idea too of there being a disconnect between you know, um, skills and just ability, you know, like it's odd that we think that, isn't it? You wrote, made such yeah, a good because, point there about writing. Yeah. It's the same thing. You need some skills, like, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And like if we think about teaching children to learn to read, what does the adult do in that situation? Okay. They're teaching specific sounds. They are showing how those sounds join together. They're making the connection between what's spoken and what's written. Uh, they're modelling, they're reading to children, they're, they're demonstrating. They're sometimes even saying, no, stop, try that again. Let me show you how this might work in a different way. And yet with the arts, and there's been this, this post-war idea of not interfering with children's art making. So Lowenfeld and Reed, two theorists who were working around about the time of the Second World War, they were really positioning art making for children as a therapeutic post-war uh, expression of trauma, right? And so part of their thinking was to say, well, you know, don't interfere, don't intervene, don't talk to the children or, you know, instruct them in anything to do with the arts or you'll sort of corrupt their natural expression and creativity. And that myth uh, you know, look, it's true, and it's it's true in a sense, in a therapeutic sense, it's true that there can be benefit in the adult not intervening if art is being used as a therapy. But art isn't only therapeutic; art is so much more than that. And if we're saying children have a right to learn this language of the arts, then it's our responsibility to actually support them to do that. And so. This idea of not interfering seems to have hung on um, in our practice. It doesn't apply in any of the other ways we teach young children, where we co-construct, model, demonstrate, scaffold the learning, et cetera, et cetera. And yet with arts, people go, oh, you know, you're either born artistic or you're not, and it's not the adult's place to demonstrate or model. It might corrupt the child's creativity. I actually think that abdication of the role of the teacher happens because of that lack of self-efficacy. I think it lets people off the hook because everyone wants to do the right thing. Everyone doesn't want to corrupt a child's natural creativity. Um, and yet, ironically, the lack of involvement by the educator can just do that. It can actually achieve the opposite of what they're trying to achieve by refusing to teach. So it's really, it's this it's a delicate balance. Though, isn't it's it? a balance. Yeah, definitely. Very delicate. Now, I'm mm. going to say that we should draw it to an end because I think we've been chatting for ages. And I don't know about you, Julia, but I could be in this conversation all day long. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know I could, far yeah. out. <laughs> I, I just think it's been amazing, Gay and Julia. It's been really great to chat. I think, you know, we've covered off on some really interesting things. I hope it inspires and motivates people to think differently um, about the arts. And um, yeah, appreciate everyone's time. Thank you for joining us and well, I just should also offer you the opportunity to say anything else if you wanted to wrap up with any other statements, either of you. I guess the one thing I would say and, and is something that was sort of a recommendation out of my PhD is focus on your image of the child. Do you think they're capable? Because if you do, then they have a right to experience 
quality arts materials and quality arts processes from the moment of birth. You do it from the start because it's that relationship with materials and think about your own identity. I think they're the two major keys. The visual arts knowledge can come because it's it's at your doorstep. You can find out anything you need to know about the language of art, but it's your own attitude and identity that will determine whether you give children that right to experience the arts in a really rich quality way. So that's what I'd recommend. Rethink your image of the child and the image of the teacher. Thank awesome. you so much, Gay. It was really, really inspiring and fantastic. I've learnt so much and I've written down a whole page of things I've got to go and access now and research further. So thank you so much for your time My today. My pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.